Hey everyone, thanks for coming back to Real Leaders. I'm Sue Heilbronner, your host, and Real Leaders is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story of some of the most authentic, innovative leaders in the world. Now, before we jump in with this week's episode, same call to action. If you haven't yet put in a review for this podcast, please go to iTunes and take the extra minute and submit a review. If you're listening to the podcast and you like it, it really makes a difference. Today, we're joined by Lisa Weinstein. She is the CEO of Curiosity. And if you're multitasking right now, you can visit curiosity.com as you're hearing from Lisa. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sue. I'm glad to be with you. Before we dive in, just give us kind of the quick elevator story pitch on Curiosity. So the quick pitch is Curiosity actually started within Discovery Communications. The business really was all about lifelong learners finding a place to come to where they could find interesting, positive, and educational content. As all companies do, they go through iterations and evolve, as has Curiosity. And so since the business spun out of Discovery three years ago, we've continued to stay true to the mission of making people smarter every day. And we've done that in a very positive way environment, particularly when juxtaposed to today's world of content. And we do make people smarter with great bits of content, whether they're articles, videos, podcasts, and we can talk a lot more about that today. But that is really the elevator pitch. We're a publisher of great content for lifelong learners who can keep getting smarter every day when they read what we publish. Awesome. And for those of you keeping score at home and you're writing your elevator pitch, which Lisa just crushed, by the way, If you have at least one word in there that's as good as juxtapose, you're in really good shape. (laughs) Lisa, thanks for that. Are you saying that, like, the news isn't positive right now? Well, if you uh, believe Mark Zuckerberg and why he made the changes to the Facebook algorithm, which punishes many publishers, although I'm happy to say that Curiosity has done well in relation to a lot of the changes that have hurt a lot of publishers, then if, if you believe that he made those changes simply because he doesn't believe the newsfeed is positive enough. There's too much negativity, fake news, right? And it's interesting because curiosity by happenstance a bit, by being true to our mission, ends up in a position where we actually do well in a world where companies like Facebook, which like it or not, is a huge gatekeeper between people, audiences, consumers, and content. And we end up being in a good position because of the kind of environment that we create for our content and for our audience. All right, great. And one more note for those of you keeping score at home, and I think we're all keeping score at home at some level. Everyone's job at a company of any size is selling. And if you haven't heard the ways that Lisa has been selling in the last four minutes, Go back to the beginning of the podcast and listen again. Nice work. Nice work, Lisa. Thanks. I really appreciate that about you. So every Real Leaders podcast kicks off with a three-minute life story of our guest. So over to you. Wow. Okay. Note to self, ask Sue for instructions for the podcast before I get on. (laughs) Great. And be better prepared for my three-minute life story. You should be good on your life story. No one knows it better than you. There you go. So the Lisa life story, and I won't bore you all the way back to my young years, but let's, let's talk about my professional. No, actually, I... Oh, you do? Yeah. I mean, everybody else can interview you about your professional life. I actually <laughs> do want to hear about the early years. Oh, good. So okay, there. look, that's more fun. Okay. Well, the best part is we actually just published a piece on Facebook Watch about why you can be nostalgic for your kind of teen and early 20 years. Separately from watching the piece that we published on Facebook Watch today, I'll tell you my story and in, in some of the ways in which I'm nostalgic. 
I actually grew up in the Midwest. I'm pretty, you know, straightforward and transparent, and I suppose Midwestern in, in the ways you would generalize. Um, I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm a huge uh, sports fan because of that basketball. Indianapolis Colts. I'm not so interested in the Super Bowl because I'm not a big Patriots fan, although there's many who like to not be Patriots fans. So I'm part of that crew. I went to school in Indiana University and, you know, grew up actually with divorced parents. I was really an only child, although half siblings and step siblings. And so I mentioned that only because I think it played a big role in, in shaping me into who I am and who I am professionally and as a leader and the ways in which I you know, coped as kids do growing up in, in different households and, and as an only child. You know, I think back to that now professionally, because I think it's given me a lot of tools to succeed in, in a career. Yeah, I just want to, I want to interrupt you there for a second. Yeah. So what's uh, only child? It's, it's really interesting. I've never heard anyone talk about it the way you just did. What's one asset being an only child has given you that's allowed you to succeed in your career? I would actually say for me, it's tenacity. And, and everyone's experience, of course, is different. So I'll speak from my own. You know, I grew up certainly close to to both my mom and my dad, lived with my mom. Um, I was like your quintessential 80s latchkey TV dinner child. <laughs> my mom was a real estate agent. And if anyone knows real estate agents that I have a ton of respect for, they work nights and weekends. And so Growing up in that in that house, the benefit was I got to spend a lot of time with my grandparents who I became very close to. But the other benefit was I learned to fend for myself, to get in the house at a young age and make my TV dinner, which I'm sure they now say has a million horrible things in it that you shouldn't have <laughs> eaten along with aerosol and all the other 80s amazing things. Not to mention 80s TV that you were watching with your TV right? dinner, but okay. <laughs> Clearly, you know, that's a good word. I think tenacity is something that I, I learned through um, my childhood. Okay. So you go to Indiana University, pick it up again there. That's right. Went to school there. Great experience for anyone who's been to Bloomington, Indiana. It's a beautiful place. Um, and came out of school with a double major in journalism and political science and a minor in theater. The only reason I ended up not majoring in theater is because I was really good academically, but the sewing lab did not agree with me. So. <laughs> oh my God. There was a sewing lab. That's awesome. Yeah, that did not work out. Imagine me I get straight A's, right? That's what I do. And I got a D in the sewing lab. And when you average the D from the sewing lab with the A from the academic part of the class, I get a B. I mean, I didn't get B's. I was on the phone with a professor over Christmas break discussing how I could possibly upgrade that. But Naturally, you were trying to <laughs> manipulate your sewing grade over Christmas break. So um, <laughs> always selling. So this may right. be the only entrepreneurial story ever that has been a majority decided by sewing. I like that. <laughs> There you go. It all went from there. So I came out of school in Indiana with um, with a lot of varied, you know, academic experience and moved to Chicago because I got a job at the time at Leo Burnett in the media department. So if you think of Mad Men and the television department, it was still Mad Men days, actually, in advertising. And so Leo Burnett Media was the media department that I joined, which was part of the larger Leo Burnett. Who would have known? You know, all my friends, you know, went to business school and were going into sales and, you know, different business roles. And I joined this advertising agency. And who would have known that I joined almost in my mind at the precipice of the biggest change in marketing and in agency world that the business had ever seen, right? Because it was just before, quite frankly, the advent of digital in terms of media and marketing. And that was kind of the mid to late 90s when media spun out of all of the creative agencies and became 
in its own right. Um, at the time, for me, it was Starcom, which you know was the media arm of Leo Burnett. And then you saw that wave happen across the industry. In fact, we weren't even the first. You know, the business then just completely accelerated in terms of the pace of change and the disruption. And what I found for myself was that I thrived in a fast-paced, changing environment where I had that tenacity to ask a lot of questions. And I, I hate to do this, but I'll say I'm just a highly curious individual. And I think that's why I, I feel so passionate about the platform of curiosity that we can certainly talk about. But from a career perspective, I ended up at the crossroads of, of all of this disruption where lots of startups and startup dollars, you know, never before was money pouring into media and in advertising and advertising technology in the way that it started to around that time, you know, early 2000s, mid 2000s. That genuinely accelerated my career in the direction to where it is today. And here I am. What you're saying is that's where you became a digital denizen very, very early on at the very, very early on stages of the web. Yeah, I did. Um, what's funny is I wasn't hands on keyboard at that stage. You know, there were a lot of people at that stage that jumped in and into like performance marketing and digital media very early. I was actually more on a general management track. But I think because of my nature of asking questions and always trying to, to learn and see around the corner and put things together. I, from a business standpoint, kind of started to fall in love with what was possible around the edges of our business because of digital. And so it's funny because I didn't do all that many digital media campaigns myself. You know, certainly I, I was there a bit, but I was already starting to get into management and leadership when it really scaled. But I absolutely love the possibilities of how the business could and should and ultimately had to even today change to survive for certainly agencies, which I had spent most of my career in. And now um, as a publisher, you know, a publisher of content, I have to tell you, there is a big part of me after having spent just four months as the CEO of Curiosity that really dislikes the former agency me <laughs> and all of the things that I thought were true um, and what I felt, you know, I was so righteous about the agency's role as a, as a bit of a middleman, quite frankly, between the publisher and the marketer. And I, I definitely have a different perspective, which I think has been incredibly good for me. All right. So, Lisa, you're alluding to stuff to some people. I think it's inside baseball. It's one of the things I notice is that people that work in the agency world think people know about the agency world. And I, and I know some about the agency world, uh, some of that influenced by Mad Men, but only very little. <laughs> but the lion's share of your career until four months ago, you've been an executive in media agencies with a dominant focus on digital, right? That's right. And you've done quite a bit of M&A in this space. You've acquired companies that yep. have, have sort of been bolt-ons for ad tech. You're very astute in that area. So what does it mean, this agency modality, uh, even in, in our current world where digital is really the mainstay of advertising? Those things that you were righteous about while you were working in an agency, what were those? So I'll set up to your very fair point of, of the inside baseball of living in this world. Um, let me just set up kind of the role of the agency as agent, if you will, and then talk about how that evolved with advertising and advertising technology, which is applicable to to my point today. You know, the agency world, which is not so different than a lot of the consulting firms that have gotten into this work today. So I use the term agency very, very broadly because even, you know, Accenture and Deloitte and, and IBM are in agency-like services. Even big publishers have arms that are now 
doing marketing services work, right? Agency work. But the beginning of it, right, was agencies sat in the middle of marketers and brands and the ways in which they reached consumers. They determined how advertisers and brands spent their money, what media they bought, right? Television, print, newspaper, radio, out of home before there was even digital. And obviously now digital and all of the the platforms and different ways you can talk to consumers. So that was the role of agency is, is in between. What happened when technology and data became all called democratized, right? Anyone can go buy ads on Facebook or Google was that the role of this middle person, the person, i.e. agency that sat in between the marketer and the marketplace, right? Audiences and consumers was questioned. How necessary is it? Is there justification for you making as much money as you're making? And then with the, I'll call it advent of digital, there became all of these new ways to access consumers, right? Through digital inventory. And then the ways in which you bought that digital inventory became automated. So you'll hear, you know, programmatic is a huge term. There's billions of dollars now that are transacted programmatically. We all can't get away from it if you're on the web and you see the ad with the little X in the triangle, right? (laughs) In the corner. Um, Those are all being targeted to you programmatically because of data that's getting passed from a publisher, a digital publisher like Curiosity to all the buyers, meaning the buying, ad buying technology. And there's lots of them. Right. So that's what the business has evolved to. The righteousness I refer to in, in myself on the agency side was, and by the way, I'm proud of this because I, I can't work somewhere where I don't believe I'm creating a significant amount of value, right? <laughs> um, in terms of like what the company does and, and what I believe in. Um, and so sitting in the agency seat and, you know, proliferating, right, being a buyer to your point, an M&A of ad technology and new ways to leverage data to reach people. I talked so much about, you know, the role of this technology and the proliferation of programmatic and justified, you know, the value it was creating, which it does. So I'm certainly not here to say it doesn't. However, I think that I did that a bit in a vacuum of recognizing how much value is also being created by publishers like Curiosity that have the really tough job of creating a lot of content for on a daily basis for every platform today, right? I mean, Curiosity has an Alexa skill, a Chrome plugin, a podcast, Facebook following, you know, our website, we have apps on Android and iOS, we have chatbots. I mean, think of the ways in which today you have to reach consumers. And I think that I just said all that without a fair appreciation for the value that's also created by publishers and how they create, I'll call it inventory, right? How they even create ways for marketers and agencies on their behalf to reach consumers. And so that's when I say, you know, I became very righteous, of course, because when you only have one perspective, which I had for 20 plus years, it's very difficult to sincerely bring another perspective, which I now have around the value of all of the ways that a curiosity or any other really quality publisher creates opportunity for advertisers to talk to their audience. I got it. I mean, even it's funny, just the use of the word inventory, they create inventory. And you know what I see ads, ads. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, I thought, oh, I thought you were saying available eyeballs to surface ads, like they create great content, we can call that that's inventory on both sides. Candidly, it's page views. So digital has radically increased in terms of the importance in the advertising market. And still, it's quite difficult to monetize consumption of creative content, which I would 
call maybe inventory or maybe art or really yeah. good journalistic reporting or creative scientific looks at topical issues like curiosity offers in part. Is that going to change? I mean, is there going to come a point where things are as frothy as they were between the whatever, the 50s and the 70s when yeah. advertising was on television and the New York Times was doing great with print ads. Obviously, they're now doing great with subscription also. But yeah. are we going to see this level out? I think it has to. And I, you know, I, I go back to the point I was making about, you know, where I sat for all those years on the agency side without an appreciation for exactly what you just said. And I, we are in such violent agreement there. I think it has to level out. We never return to those days where you had such aggregation of audience through one buy. It just doesn't exist today and it never will again because of the the personalization and the choice and, you know, all the channels. You, you can almost bring together video and television today, right? Because what what is television? You can stream on a big screen from any app today. So so I don't think it ever returns, but I think it has to level out because I got to be honest, it bums me out every day when I look at how the marketplace values the audience that I've aggregated at Curiosity, right? That this team has aggregated um, and they say that it's worth like maybe a dollar per thousand today, <laughs> right? Like that doesn't feel great. And it's why you've seen the market move to so many different places, right? It's why you've seen a New York Times build out a T-Brand Studios, which is highly successful and consultative and very agency marketing services like, right? Um, or subscription models because consumers directly value the content more than advertisers seem to value it, right? Um, <laughs> right. Cost per thousand. right, right, right. So I think it's driven all of these changes. All right. So Lisa, you were in a series of large companies. You had a stint in a BE firm or a structure where you were doing M&A and putting together kind of a roll up of ad tech companies. And you joined four months ago, a really scrappy startup. I mean, you talked about the roots and it being founded by a large company. I, ironically, I used to work at Discovery. So I've seen those kinds of deals rise and fall coming out of large yep. media companies we both have. What went into your decision to make that kind of change? Oh, that is a really good question that I'll do my best to answer. I got to be honest, you know, I started out as an advisor to the company. I knew the original founder a bit. I didn't know him terribly well, but we got reconnected and he asked for my help. Uh, and I said I was happy to help. I, it fell into me, if you will, the board. We have great investors and, in, you know, Pritzker Group and Chicago Ventures and Origin and Hyde Park Angels and, you know, great investors here in Chicago the business had built this amazing platform, like I talked about, that reaches consumers across, you know, a myriad of, of ways. Yet, you know, it hadn't scaled in terms of its business, um, like the dollars and cents side, while it had scaled in terms of audience and quality of content and all those things. You know, I have to say, when they first asked me to, to take on the role, my initial gut instinct was absolutely not. Like my whole career, you know, I've been part of tens of thousands of person organizations. I've succeeded incredibly well in those organizations. I just couldn't wrap my head around running a startup, if you will, a scrappy startup. Um, even though I love the idea of it, I just didn't think that was what was next for me. But I quickly came around to realizing that it was exactly what was next for me because I so fundamentally believed in what the business was doing and in the content that the audience loved. And I recognized that my skill set was really highly suited, whether it was a small company or a huge, huge organization. This business wasn't well known. I mean, if you say curiosity or curiosity.com to people, 
many, some, but many will not have heard of it. You know, yet it's it's actually you know such an incredible platform and has its own incredible story to tell. So, you know, my skill set of of being able to build and market and grow and sell and commercialize and all of those things, I think we're just. I I, I woke up one day after saying, oh no way, I couldn't do this. Um, I woke up one day and thought, what am I doing? Like, why why am I not doing this? This is exactly what I should be doing, and it gives me this entirely different perspective on a sector of the business that I'm so passionate about, I believe in, um, whether it's the agency side, the publisher side, the brand marketer side, you know, I, I'm a fundamental believer in the value of, of marketing and messaging and content and all those things. Yeah, yeah, that's the, the short, long story. <laughs> because people are looking at this decision all the time, right? You know that, that this is something that a lot of people fantasize about. Uh, I don't know that you were one of those people, but what's one sacrifice you had to get comfortable with to make a transition from big, giant companies to a startup? You know what's really funny? The transition to me has been completely seamless. Lisa, I need one, I need one sacrifice. There has to be some. Oh, oh try, I'm, I was going to tell you, though. Okay, don't don't <laughs> so, be dodging. Okay. I am not. I'm not dodging. So the, and I'm going to be real transparent. So, so the transition has been completely seamless. The biggest issue for me Big companies come with big company things like perks, like salary, like bonus structures, less risk, everything. I, you know, I'm expensing my parking. You know, I've pulled into the same parking lot at the Leo Burnett Media, you know, or Starcom garage for years and known the guy who, who works there. You just have a level of comfort from an overall, I'll call it, you know, financial and compensation side and just an altogether package. And I had to come to terms with, you know, these companies are scrappy and the way you have to work is scrappier. And I had to think about value, not just in terms of everyday compensation, but in equity and equity structures and bonus around different things. And I'll be honest, that's a big adjustment. You know, I spent more than two decades in a very different world, which mentally had me valuing myself differently. And I had to wrap my head around that. So it's funny because None of the transition in terms of the job coming to an office that was in a slightly different area because it's where startups are and much smaller company and smaller PL. Like I don't have that. None of that was actually hard. The one hard part was was wrapping my head around just a totally different structure. That's great. Thank you. One thing that comes to mind as I listen to you talk is the differences between being a CEO and not being a CEO. And I talk to lots of leaders all the time. I talk to a lot of female leaders. Getting your first CEO role isn't always a simple thing. It's like, well, you have no CEO experience. You can't possibly be a CEO. This, I know, was a longer nurtured relationship for you. And and obviously, you were a great catch for curiosity. What are the differences for you of being a CEO and not being one knowing that you've had incredibly senior roles all the way along, just not that role. What are the differences? Yeah, it's such a good question. So I've had CEO titles, president titles, you know, all the executive titles. I've technically, supposedly run P&Ls at different companies, but, you know, they're divisions of larger corporations. There is no comparison to being the CEO of a business like this, a startup where it's myself and it's the board. And I am accountable for everything from fundraising and we're just, you know, finalizing our A1 round to our lease, (laughs) literally our lease negotiation with our landlord to every decision around expenses that impacts the company. And for me, actually, it's a perfect match because one of the things I, I personally love is 
is seeing the impacts of my decisions. I'm probably impatient. I'm certainly impatient. I shouldn't say probably. I am impatient. <laughs> and so being in a business where you you can move fast and you can change everything, you know, from culture to to business decisions to, you know, a real P&L uh, on a day-to-day basis, I, there is unquestionably no comparison to running a business like this or being even having a CEO title within, you know, a much larger corporation. Lisa, one of the questions I ask on this podcast a lot is what one piece of feedback our guest has received that they've received basically their entire life and they work on it and you, you try to dial it in, but still essentially when you get tough feedback, it, it often is around the same theme. You get better at it, but that theme still lasts. What's your version of that? Yeah, I have a couple. Um, <laughs> So my version of that is when there is a problem, I run at it. So meaning if there's a brick wall and I need to get through that brick wall, historically, I've just run into the brick wall and run into the brick wall and eventually I've gotten through versus thinking about digging a tunnel or (laughs) seeing, you know, looking on either side and seeing how far it goes. I guess it goes back to that tenacity, right? It's like, darn it, I'm going to get through that brick wall. And the fastest path is between me and the brick wall straight ahead. (laughs) Right. And so I've definitely gotten that feedback professionally since I've, I've worked. I think I've gotten a lot better at listening um, and thinking things through. Uh, I will tell you that an environment like this that's so fast paced has a tendency to get you to revert back to some of those old ways, huh. <laughs> I think. So that's been interesting. The other one is maybe you, you even said this to me once in a conversation. Um, when you're a fixer, everything's broken. <laughs> I can't get that one out of my head because it's true. You know, no matter what business I've been in, I'd love to fix things because it doesn't matter how successful of a company you're a part of, right? There's always something that can be better. And I have an impatience to make those things better. And so um, I've tried to, especially again, in a startup where of course, you know, one of everything can be broken because you're small and you're scrappy and you're running at different things and everything could be better. I've had to to focus myself on those things that I think will make the biggest difference. Yeah. I mean, both of those are such great examples of core leadership qualities that have a high side. They have lots of positive things they deliver and also potentially a, a low side, which I, I think you're alluding to. You've had opportunities in your career to this is a crass way of saying this, but I'm going to use it this way, to manage up and manage down and presumably manage sideways. Which one of those things are you best at? I can tell you what I'm worst at. Okay, start there. Um, I'm worst at sideways, which is why I'm best in a company like this because there's no one side by side with me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's not funny how those things happen. What's that about being bad at managing sideways? Um, Because I just am who I am. And I'm pretty direct and, and I'm sensitive. I'm certainly sensitive, but I'm also direct. And I think sideways, meaning kind of peer group, and it's not like every peer, but my personal perspective based on years of performance reviews is that where I'll ruffle feathers the most, if I ruffle them is the sideways is the peer group. I've always theorized that some of it is because I could be threatening perhaps, right? Um, in big companies where people are jockeying for a position like that happens. That's human. But, you know, of course, some of it is probably me and how I show up. And so those are things I've worked on. I would say I'm probably best at managing up. I think it goes back to one of the very first things you said four minutes in, which is I I do think 
Um, I've never been in a, a, a straight up sales role, but I think I'm really good at selling because I, you know, I'm passionate about about what I do and approach things that way. So I think when you have those characteristics, you're just really good at managing up. But I, I genuinely like, I'll call it managing down, um, using those terms. I love, you know, building teams. Some of my most proud moments have been seeing people who started as, you know, an intern of mine or people that I've mentored, you know, go on to to do wonderful things. So I think definitely managing up is where I excel the most, but um, managing down is is critical and I also love. So Lisa, I'm just listening to you talk and imagining myself as someone who didn't know you and I really notice your tenacity. I notice your fierceness and you and I have a few things in common. So I don't find it all that surprising just because I I don't know. It just it, it's familiar to me in in you and in myself actually. But I really notice it. And when I talk to leaders, and this happens with male and female leaders, of course, but uh, I end up talking to a lot of female leaders because of my role at Merge Lane. They often talk about this inside voice, this negative voice, uh, or an imposter voice that's inside them that you know has varying levels of control or dominance depending on their mood, what's happening, what just happened. Do you have a, a critical voice inside you? Oh, a- absolutely. And what's the most common thing your internal critic tells you? So my internal critic, and and not to say that it doesn't happen from a business perspective day to day, because it does, but my biggest internal critic comes in the shape of how I am a mom and uh, do my job. Mm-hmm. I mean, just hands down when I, I'll call it push back on myself <laughs> uh, in my head, right? You know, because these things, your internal critic is is internal, just that. that. Those are the most challenging when I just feel like I get to the end of a day and I didn't really engage when I was doing that math homework or, you know, the whole ride home when I was just checking my email. Um, my husband was, you know, driving, not yeah. me. <laughs> but just to clarify, um, you know, those kinds of things uh, in truth. I mean, of course, I have that same critic from a business perspective, but, it, but the ones that really get me are the ones that have to do with, um, you know, kind of my, my, my mom role. <laughs> yeah, thanks. How, how do you handle that? I mean, so your internal critic starts giving you a hard time for not doing it well enough or being present enough or whatever. How do, how do you manage that internal doubt? <laughs> not very well. <laughs> um, you know what? Uh, I And I work on this, but... I don't manage it well, period. But what I try to do every day, and I don't do it well a lot of times, but I'm getting better at it, uh, is put down the phone and and spend the time. You know, and even if it's 20, 30 minutes on a homework assignment or sitting and watching a show together, you know, my kids are still fairly young, you know, six and almost nine. Um, I feel like I've, I probably haven't done it nearly as much as I would have liked to, but I at least think I still have time <laughs> to to get it right or at least better or closer to. And and that's all I can say because I, I just think yeah, it's a really tough one. I'm sure it's tough for a, a lot of people. Yeah. So Lisa, what's the biggest thing you're learning now? Not necessarily content, but about your own leadership. Like what's your next learning frontier for your own personal growth as a leader? I, I think in this role in particular, I've, I've already learned a lot about my ability to kind of galvanize people and change a culture. And so in terms of my next frontier, and again, I've, I've been here just four months, so I think I'm just at the early stages of 
really proving to myself and, and continuing to learn around how I manage not just any organization, small or big, um, but importantly, how I manage through the ups and downs. Um, what I've never experienced because of the size, quite frankly, of organization that I've been a part of are such pronounced ups and downs. And, in, you know, when you're in a small business, it's so clear. And, and what I'm learning to manage through is everyone reads me, right? I mean, it's not like you're the CEO of a 2000 person business and like most people only see you on the annual webcast. <laughs> um, people see me every day and they can read me. And if I'm having a really bad day and you're in a startup, people get nervous, right? And so for me, that next frontier is really around the, the people side and, and how do you grow people and change culture in a way that I can now truly do an impact versus I think huge organizations talk about culture and it's obviously critical and important and you can see it in the right organizations, but in a company that's smaller, it's, it's just an entirely different, different opportunity and experience. Okay. That's a great answer. Thanks. And one thing that your experience that you can uniquely teach other people because of the experience you've had in your career, what's one thing? Oh, geez, you always come up with these, Sue, don't you? Um, <laughs> and I, gosh, I hate to to use this, but I do think it's it's true and valuable. Um, this idea of tenacity that, for me, translates into a a belief and an ability to make stuff happen. Mm. Um, I, I am a doer as well. You know, I don't like to just sit in a in a room on a whiteboard and draw up a strategy. Um, I fundamentally believe in being able to get it done and executing. And so I hope that I can teach people that every single person in an organization can play such an important role in just getting it done and, and you know, making positive change. Awesome. All right. A couple really fast questions. And you're going to have no time. These are lightning questions. The three people in your life who have been most influential to who you are today, and you're only allowed to say one sentence about them. All right. So two of the three are my grandparents. That goes back to my earlier part of the story, <laughs> of my story. Uh, and I would just say they showed me uh, the love of 70 years of marriage, which enough said. Mm. And then I would say, um, I'm only allowed three. I can't throw in both my kids. Um, you know what I would say? Uh, this And this won't be anyone anyone knows, but there was a man that I worked for who's literally the second person that I worked for. Um, and so professionally, this person, his name is Ed Hughes, gave, and, and he knows this, gave me so much space to become who I am, mm. and I've been forever grateful. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that I'm so glad that happened early in your career. That that continues to pay dividends. Okay, who's going to win advertising, Google or Facebook? Google. And last question: favorite moment you've had with your children being a present mom in the last month? Just one sentence, one moment. Last night doing homework with my almost nine-year-old and afterwards it was very clear it was different and I was present and he said to me mom can we do more mommy son stuff oh, okay that's a good one enough <laughs> enough said <laughs> that's awesome uh Lisa thank you so much for joining us today you've heard from Lisa Weinstein she is the newly minted CEO of Curiosity at Curiosity.com and there are millions of you who already know about Curiosity.com and that number is going to multiply fast with Lisa at the helm thanks for joining us Lisa
Thanks, Sue. And thanks all of you for joining us on Real Leaders. Real Leaders is brought to you by Leadership Camp. Leadership Camp is a two and a half day deep dive into conscious leadership, building more self-aware leaders and helping to make great leaders extraordinary. Find out about the next Women's Leadership Camp, our next co-ed camp, and new for 2018, jump on this, it's gonna sell out fast, our first ever man camp facilitated by two women. Reserve your seat today at leadership.camp. Thanks for being with us again. We'll see you at the next episode of Real Leaders. If you have comments, feedback, questions, find me on Twitter at Tell Sue.